Matthew 9, 17, the last mini parable. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a disclaimer here because I feel like I have to be honest. Um, <laughs> Sylvia says, yikes. There, I'm a fallible man. You know that? I, I, could, I, I could get things wrong. This isn't an easy passage. And even the most um, well-respected saints of church history have disagreed on these too many parables. Uh, I do believe that there is one major point for every passage that God's trying to communicate. But I also believe, and I'm trying to remember who I heard say this, that Scripture is like a diamond while there is one major glory to be shown through it, but that as you look at that diamond and you turn it, you see things differently from each angle in different light. And so, there's a, there's a good chance I have fallen on my face many times in my interpretation of what God's Word says. Um, if I ever say otherwise, show me the door, please. Um but just it, this is a this is a tough passage. But I do think that which we can gain from it, that which I feel like the Lord has shown me, uh, is there is truth. Uh, but there, you might have heard something different at another point, uh, and that that's okay. Um, and there, I'll give time at the end of this to give any conversation on on. Uh, how we might have heard the teaching of, of these two parables different. Um, with that said, let's jump in. Let me read verse 16 and 17, and then just kind of do a recap of what we've what we talked about this morning. 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is filled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. Quick, quick prayer. Father, help us, uh, teach us, edify us, build us up into Christ Jesus through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll just give you an example um, of what I'm talking about. I read a lot of different commentators on this one, and a lot of them said it basically kind of came into two different camps on on the context or what Jesus was trying to get at. And I typically will never teach anything that I haven't read someone else say in church history, because if it's new and I've never heard anyone say it, then I've probably got it wrong, right? If, if I'm the first person to ever interpret a passage this way, be leery of my interpretation. Um, but I, I, I came across Benjamin Keach, who's a very well-known uh, uh, Baptist Puritan from the 1600s. And he, he was explaining it in the way that I, I felt the Lord was uh, leading me in it. And then my brother Justin gave me a commentary this afternoon on Matthew. And I went and opened it, and sure enough... He went the opposite way. <laughs> and so, you know, it, that's just the reality. Um, there are some things there are some things that aren't so plain, right, in Scripture. 
And I've taken, I've taken the, the route of uh, uh, someone I've looked up to greatly over the last few years of, in Alistair Begg who says the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And, and, and not to say that uh, we'll always, we'll always preach and teach in the bounds of orthodoxy, but there's always some room for discussion in the things that aren't so plain. But where the thing, where the main things are, God is very plain. He's very clear. Uh, that's called the perspicuity of Scripture. That when it comes to salvific things and things pertaining to our growth and holiness, God has made it very clear in His Word. And there's really not a lot of room for discussion in those things. So let's just have that in our mind for now and, and into the future. All right, so recap of this morning. We've got the second of two many parables, many as, as in small they're just one verse apiece. And these mini parables come in the context of this com- these conversations with the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples. They're asking Jesus certain questions. The Pharisees, why do you do this? The John's disciples, why do you not do this? Um, and as I mentioned this morning, they're, they're basically scratching their heads trying to understand what Jesus is up to. And we've come to the conclusion that the reason why they're scratching their heads at Jesus so often is because he's doing something new, new, which is a theme of these two parables. There's something new or something that needs to be made new. Um, He came into this world to save this world by turning this upside down world right side up. Now, what is this new thing? We touched on it this morning. The new thing has a name. The new thing in the Bible is called the gospel. The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you were to be, if you wanted a a, a straightforward definition of what the gospel is, Paul gives you a pretty straightforward definition in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3, I believe, where he says, uh, uh, he wanted to remind them of the gospel, this that he preached to them, that Christ uh, died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried and raised from the dead in accordance with the Scripture, and he had made himself known to us. <coughs> that in a most basic nutshell is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it can take on many, many other forms of definitions. <coughs> One we referenced this morning in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him to be sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That's a good biblical definition of the gospel. Bad news being we're not righteous. The good news being that God has done something in Christ. Not only has he done something, he's put our badness, our sin, our guilt, and our shame on his son and thereby faith removing that from us and then giving to us the righteousness of Jesus that we never had. And that's where we touched on this morning about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ turns sinners into saints. (coughs) Forgive me. Brings life to the dead. The gospel gives sight to the spiritual blind. The gospel gives 
hearing to the spiritual deaf. It gives hope to the hopeless. And as I touched on it, our first parable <clears throat> looked at the idea of that which covers us, right? That which covers us, the garment. Uh, we think about being covered by the blood, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? This is, this is the idea that when God sees someone covered by the blood, clothed in the righteousness of God, that, they, that God the Father sees not our filthy garments, our sin, our guilt, but sees that which God, through Jesus Christ, has put on us. Righteousness, cleanliness, through the garments of righteousness. Um, but before that, God saw polluted, unclean, defiled garments upon us. And that first parable said that if we try to just patch up that polluted, unclean, defiled, worn-out garment, we're only going to make matters worse before God. We needed a new garment. We need to be clothed by God as Adam and Eve were in the garden. We need the righteousness of Christ. Now the second parable, while the first considers a covering, the second then turns to... The internal, right? So the first one, a covering. The second, more internal. Because we speak of wineskins that are filled with wine. Right? The wine, the new wine is going into the wineskins. The, wine, the old wineskins or new wineskins are to be filled and carry the new wine. Now let's explain the parable. Uh... As far as it is, Jesus. As far as Jesus gives it, you got to have to have a little bit of understanding of wine making to get this parable, um, the process of it. So to make wine, you take grapes, smash them, press them into grape juice. I'm given a very simple uh, process: add yeast to the juice, uh, store it in vats. To let it over time ferment, um, the yeast and the grapes are both living things, and they interact with one another. And as they interact with one another, they release gases, right? This interaction between the juice and the yeast create gases that come out and expand the area that's around it. Well, in the vats, where usually they first start the wine... That's not a problem. But to finish and store the wine, they will typically put it back however long ago, but specifically also in Jesus' time, in animal skin. And so they would, they would kill a goat. They would skin it. They would shave it down as best they could. I read that they would turn it inside out. I don't know if that, if that one, um, or that one uh, explanation was correct or not, but it doesn't really matter. But the point is, is that they would use the animal hide to store the wine as it continued to ferment, as it continued to age. Um, and this was a good thing because that aging with the yeast and the grapes kept it from spoiling and allowed it to, to live longer and be used for longer by those who drank it. 
So you put the wine in the wine skin, and that process of fermentation, that expelling of gas, would then start to press into every nook and cranny of that goat skin and push it out, right? And the fibers of the skin would stretch. And so a fresh skin would allow new wine to expand, to expel the gases, okay? And then uh, over time, the process of fermentation would slowly decrease, I believe, and then there is no more expansion, no more gas expulsion, and so you've got your, your wine in a wine skin, and you're ready to go. The problem comes is when you're done, the wine is gone, you've got a new vat of wine, and you're ready to store it in your wineskin. Jesus says, basically, it's foolish to put new wine in your used wineskin because the new wine is full of life more than the wine that was in it, and so it's got a lot of gas to expel. It's got a lot of expansion to do. But the wineskin you just used has been expanded to its limit. And if you put new wine in an old wineskin, it will press and press, and the fibers will not be able to expand. All that it can do is rupture. And so you get one, I, I think, I think you get one chance, one uh, wine with one wineskin from what I've heard. It might be more than that. I don't know. But the point is, is that at some point you've got to go and get a new wineskin. You've got to go and cut up another animal and start all over in the process. If you don't want to, as he says, um, if the skins burst, the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. So that's the process. That's what's taking place. Um, so Jesus Jesus does something in this parable, this mini parable, that he didn't do in the first one. And that's one of those things with that first parable. You're like, why couldn't you have just said one more thing to help me understand it a little bit better? But in this one, he gives us a little bit more. He, he, he sort of draws it to a conclusion. See, on the first parable, and this is where disagreement might take place. I drew the conclusion that the old garment needs to go away and a new garment needs to come. Jesus didn't say that, right? But he said, you're not going to put a new patch on an old garment. Well, if you're not going to put a new patch on an old garment and you need to wear your garment, what do you got to do? I, I think you've got to get a new garment. And, I, and if you combine that parable with this parable where Jesus says at the end of it, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, I think it's safe to say that we have to get rid of the old and get a new, whether it's a garment or a wineskin. So that's the conclusion I drew with these parables. Um, just for your knowledge, the other, the other major explanation of this passage all has to do with uh, the argument about fasting. I don't want to. I, I don't understand it well enough to explain it. But basically, um, Jesus is saying what I'm doing doesn't match with the old ways of fasting that you're doing, and that's probably there's probably some truth there. Um, 
But as I studied, to me it seemed that as the, the, the most important element that needed to be expressed is our old does not mix with the new. That what Jesus is doing. So that, that's the, that's the way we're gonna we're gonna take this. I, I don't I don't have a lot here, um, but I do. We have to give some obverse oh goodness observations regarding wine, but also new wine. Okay, first we must understand, and this is a t- touchy subject in the South. Um, wine that is, wine played a significant part. In the lives of the Israelites, from the Old Testament to the New, it was there. It was present. When Israel came out of Egypt and entered into Canaan, they were entering into a place where they were going to litter the fields and the, the hills with vineyards. It was ripe for the picking, pun intended, right? That they were going into a fertile land, and it was a it was a perfect place for vineyards, for grapes to be um, to be uh, raised up. Um, wine was a common drink. I mean, common. It was as common as water because good, clean water was not common. And so when you mix. Uh, I don't know. Do you put water when you make wine? You probably do. I don't know. But anyway, the point is, is that the fermentation process within the grape juice created a drinkable fluid uh, for the for them of their time. There was no negative connotation to drinking wine at that time. There was a definite negative connotation to drunkenness, right? But not necessarily to wine drinking. Um, because drunkenness is sin, without a doubt. Uh, you also think about the biblical feasts and festivals and ceremonies, and that they weren't celebrating and performing these feasts and festivals without wine. Um, Jesus was even a part of, we know in John 2, in the wedding at Cana. Uh, uh, like the show was about to stop because they were about to run out of wine. Wine was very important. Now, you might go like, well, a bunch of drunkards. No, 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 no. We have to understand that it was a provision of God to Israel. And if you go and read the Old Testament, there are times when men get too merry with their wine. But there are also times in the New Testament where men eat and drink and go away merry. God has given us, provided for us, as he did Israel. I'm not encouraging wine drinking, this or that. I'm just trying to help us understand wine in the scriptures because of its importance to the people of this time and of Israel. Um, Not only that, but wine was a part of their worship, okay? There was wine in the temple, and there were some occasions when you brought your sacrifice, you also brought a um, a drink offering, right? And it was wine. It was wine brought along with the other sacrifices. So wine was wine was a necessity for life. It brought joy, uh, and it was a part of their worship. Now, 
it wasn't their life, their joy, and their worship, that would be a drunk, right? But it was a provision to them to help with their life, their joy, and their worship. But new wine, Jesus says, um, we've got new wine. And that's a spiritual theme you hear people uh, uh, speak of, that Jesus is new wine, the gospel is new wine. Again, this is in a reference to the fact that Jesus is doing something new. If wine is such such a, a good thing for Israel, Jesus is coming and saying, I got new wine. Right? I got something even better. Yes, better. Um, case in point, at the wedding at Canaan, uh, Jesus turns water into wine. But he did more than that. He made a point. And it's a point we might not realize. Did you know there's a few little words in John 2 that tells us something about What was going on when Jesus turned water into wine? The six stone water jars were described this way. For the Jewish rites of purification. Was that Sunday school we were talking about? Rites of purification? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Sunday school this morning, we were talking about, and we were were talking about baptism. And we were making reference to how baptism uh, is a, a, a... an outward sign of the remission of sin, the washing of, of sin, and how this was um, the fulfillment of what Jewish ritual washings were in the Old Testament. Um, they, had, they had different reasons of why they were to wash this way or wash that way, whether they encountered a dead body or the high priest were about to go in the temple. Um, there were certain rituals given to them by God and how they ought to cleanse themselves. If they found themselves to be unclean. Well, you've got six stone water jars sitting over at this wedding. Used for these rites of purification. For physically pouring out water. Okay. On someone for the sake of cleansing them to be clean before God. Okay. What is that? That's an outward washing. A physical cleansing. So what does Jesus do? He says, give me your jars that you use to pour water on one another. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to put wine in those jars. What was he saying? He was saying, this is new. That water that you use for purification can only wash away dirt. But what I'm bringing, this new wine, is going to wash away dirt. The sin from your soul. This is new, better wine. And I know some of us knew that already, that story. Um, but I, I also think that there is great significance in our parable that the new wine, and also in the story at Cana, that the new wine is going into something. Not on something. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a second. So two things on the new wine. The new wine of Christ, if we want to, to give it a, a definition, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a work internal, not external, not a balm, not a medicine that you put on. But it is something that is poured into you 
to cleanse you from the inside. I, I couldn't help but keeping Ephesians 5 in my mind. Um, and it's just a, one verse there. And let me read it for you. When considering wine <clears throat> and this new wine idea, Paul tells the Ephesians, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And I think he could have said this if he knew if he knew what we would be talking about new wine. But be filled with the new wine. But what does he say? Be filled with the Spirit. So, don't get drunk on wine. Don't lose control on wine. But be controlled by the Spirit of God. That which is poured inside of you. Right? Romans 5. How does Paul say it to them? Um, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's, that is new wine. That is life, joy, and hope. That is life, joy, and hope. And new wine, like in the parable, the gospel has an expanding um, I don't know the right word. It expands, right? It, it, it doesn't stay, but moves out and presses and goes uh, into all the crevices of who we are, right? It's, it, is like, it is like leaven, the parable of the kingdom that... Um, I believe that's in Matthew right here. 13, uh, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which yeast is a type of leaven, which yeast is used in wine to make it expand, to, to make it uh, live and gives the expanse, and the, ex, the, the gas that is uh, expelled. Heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in the three measures of flour till it was all, till it was all leavened. So the new wine, like leaven in a bread, does not stay, but when it comes and is poured inside of us, takes itself and moves itself out and grows. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about that episode of I Love Lucy. Have you seen it where she puts too much yeast in the dough? And then the next thing you know that they come uh, they come into the kitchen and this 20-foot piece of bread comes shooting out of the oven what in in an odd way it it mimicked our parable the the oven couldn't contain that which was living inside of of it the the yeast brought so much growth that the oven burst open and the bread the dough came rushing out that's the, that's the living force of the yeast inside the bread that's the living force within the Spirit of God that is poured into us, is that it doesn't just go in and just stays and does not go or grow, but that it, it, it presses upon us in a way that, that changes us. It changes us. Which leads us to this reality of getting rid of the old and bringing in the new. We need to be made into new containers, into new bottles, 
new wineskins. This is going back. I think that, I think these two par- parables um, are are st- are standing on that doctrinal foundation of new creation. We need new wineskins for the new wine. We need new garments given to us by God. You know, and I, Steve mentioned it. it is the power of the new birth. It's the power of the Spirit indwelling a person. Now, uh, here's where touching the contrast between Old and New Covenant is unavoidable. And I mentioned that this morning, that we're not necessarily looking at Old and New and thinking about New and Old Covenant, but at the same time, you almost cannot not go there because... That's what Jesus is doing. Is the new thing that he's doing is wrapped up. It is the new covenant. And what is, what is promised in the new covenant? It is to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And the new wine, the Spirit of God, doesn't just fill, but it transforms. It transforms the container that which it fills into a new creation. So that begs the question, can you be filled with the Spirit? Can you be filled with the Gospel and not be changed, not be transformed? The question is no. I think it's impossible. It's impossible. You think about the promise of God filling His people with his spirit. Do you know how far back it goes? It goes back to Moses. The prophecy and promise of God filling his people with his spirit is that far back. Go with me to Numbers 11. I recommend reading the the books of the Bible you don't read very often. Try to catch back up on them because you you might remember something from one one day and and then cannot remember where in the world you saw that truth one day. And so be familiar with all the scriptures so when the Lord brings something to your mind and you want to communicate it, you can do that very thing. Numbers 11. Uh... I don't want to read all of this uh, for the sake of time, but what we understand in Numbers 11, beginning in verse 16, is that Moses is appointing elders, 70 elders, to Israel to help him uh, basically govern the, the nation. And when he appoints them, verse 17 says, And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you, God speaking to Moses, and put them, put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it, bear it yourself alone. So there you see a taste of God giving His Spirit, but He's going to take a portion from Moses and put it on these seventy elders of Israel. And so when that happens, let's see if we can find it. Verse twenty-four. 
So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. When the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders, as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. So they prophesied in the camp, meaning among the people. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medab are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, here you go, here it is. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Sounds a lot like Jeremiah. Sounds a lot like Ezekiel. Look at Jeremiah with me. chapter when I find it. Let's see. 31, verse 31. Again, we're thinking about Jesus doing something new, and that is the new covenant and giving the promised Holy Spirit to God's people. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Why? Because they'll all be prophets. They'll all have the word of the Lord in them. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now you you smush that up with Ezekiel. Turn Turn a few pages to the right to Ezekiel 36. And Ezekiel gives us a little bit more of an understanding of this. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness And from all your idols I will cleanse you. Sounds a lot like the first parable that we looked at. Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart. There's your new container. There's your new wineskins. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A pliable Soft heart that feels, that has affection. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey 
my rules. I think that's new wine in a new wineskin. I think that's the, the work of Christ doing something new in the new creation. The Spirit of God will not rest in old wineskins because if you if you want to consider the push the analogy a little bit further old compared to new is unholy versus holy unclean versus clean sanctified versus um, common the spirit of god will dwell only in the holy and the only way that you can be a vessel for the spirit of god is for God to make you into something new. That's it. That's it. New wineskins. Romans 6, the, what we referenced this morning at the at, at, for the baptism, the old self has been crucified. And we've been raised to new life, a newness of life. When the old self is confronted by new wine without transformation. Oh, let's say this. Okay, let me, I'll, I'll finish here. Paul talks to the Corinthians about the aroma of, how does he say it? Paul speaks to the, the Corinthians in chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, about the fragrance of Christ. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So let me suggest that those who are being saved can be looked at those who have been made new. Those who are perishing are those who are still old. The aroma goes to both of them, okay? But to one, the fragrance comes from death to death, and to the other, fragrance from or from from to the other, a fragrance from life to life. The old wine skin and the new wine skin are both confronted with the new wine. When the new wine is poured into the new wine skin, it, it thrives. But when the gospel confronts the old, the untransformed, the rebel, the evil, it bursts. It bursts it open. The aroma is sweet to the new and death to the old. So we have to understand that. The love of God is sweet to us, but stinks to the unbeliever. And so we give thanks that as we have been filled with the Spirit, 
that we've been transformed into something new. And that is by the glorious grace of God into changing us into something that contains, that can contain something so divine and holy. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted, given to us as a gift His precious and great promises, so that through Him you may become partakers, participants of the divine nature. Only a new wineskin can participate and partake of such divine goodness. And thanks be to God He has given it and granted it to us in Jesus Christ. That's all I have. Evie's pointing to the clock, I guess. Any questions? Any thoughts? Anything before we close?